0: This episode of In Good Company is sponsored by Plum, a money management app and one-stop destination for managing your personal finances. Looking after your finances doesn't need to be complicated. And with Plum, it's easier than ever to take control of your money situation, no matter what your situation is. Using automated tools, Plum allows you to manage your money with minimal effort, whether that's saving money, opening a pension, or comparing and switching your energy bill and insurance providers. Plum actually adapts to your spending, automatically calculating how much you can afford to set aside at any given moment, so you'll never end up being caught short. If you've got a busy lifestyle, and really, don't we all, Plum also allows you to set some simple rules that do the saving for you, like its round-ups feature, which rounds up all of your purchases to the nearest pound and puts those extra pennies straight into a savings pot meaning you'll be adding to your savings without even having to think about it. Download the Plum app for free now and try it out for yourself. Thank you very much to Plum. Hello and welcome to In Good Company podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Ategi Ragba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. To coincide with the publication of my new book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is out now, every episode in this eight-part season is me speaking to various women about their relationships with and experiences of money and having those honest conversations that I think we're all dying to have but often don't get to. If you don't know much about my book, We Need to Talk About Money, here's a little overview. It's a part memoir, part cultural commentary, exploring my experiences with money over the years and what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money and our position in society, particularly as that relates to women. So it's a mixture of the personal, stories from my childhood, adolescence, my professional life, but it also touches on a lot of bigger issues, from class and privilege to feminism and race, beauty standards, toxic workplaces, how money can affect friendships, and above all, how people's experiences of those things might differ and impact their lives. You can buy it now in hardback, ebook, and audio, with signed copies available from waterstones.com. And I've linked to all those retailers in the show notes. On today's episode, I'm speaking to journalist Vicki Spratt, the iPaper's housing correspondent, as well as an editor at Refinery29. Vicky has been reporting on the UK's housing crisis for a number of years now, and in 2016, she created a successful campaign, Make Renting Fair, designed to highlight the plight of generation rent, and which resulted in the government announcing a ban on letting agency fees for tenants. Her forthcoming book, Tenants, will be published next year, and is set to be the most comprehensive look at the human impact of the housing crisis yet. One of the things I most appreciate about Vicky's journalism is her ability to make often confusing and slightly inaccessible topics easily understandable to those of us who aren't housing experts, and this episode is no different. Her explanation of exactly why the housing market is so messed up, and who the real winners and losers are from our present setup, is one of the clearest you're likely to find. And as part of our conversation, I also asked her to demystify the pros and cons of some of the schemes that are often advertised as the best way for first-time buyers to get onto the property ladder, including shared ownership and help to buy. The latter of which was Vicky's own route into home ownership, as you'll hear her explain. We also discussed the more emotional side of how housing and security affects people and the consequences of the UK's cultural obsession with home ownership as well as class and social mobility. In particular, Vicky's experiences of disguising her own class background to fit in while she was studying at Oxford. I found this conversation incredibly informative and super helpful, and I'm absolutely certain you will too. So huge thanks to Vicky for that. Here she is. You've been reporting on the housing crisis for years now, and you're also publishing a book about it. Tenants, which comes out next year, and in particular looks at the human impact of the crisis. So my first question for you is, why is the housing market in the UK such a cast of
1: <laughs> Well, that is a huge question and an important question, because I don't think there is a single person in this country, regardless of how they're impacted by the crisis in housing, who isn't impacted by it. And I think there are so many different reasons why we now have a crisis of affordability and availability of homes that people urgently need. But for me, the main one that's kind of like the umbrella under which all the other problems sit would be what we call the financialization of housing. So this is the turning of houses, not into homes, but into assets. And for the last decade or so in many parts of the country it has been more lucrative to own property than it has to be in work like just sit with that for a minute so that coupled with the deregulation of the private rented sector through buy-to-let mortgages which became available in the 90s And the slow unpicking of regulations to protect renters, which began under Thatcher, has really just created a perfect storm whereby people who can invest in property and drive prices up and people who can't, obviously because they need homes, end up paying through the nose and over the odds for housing that often, not always, but often isn't fit for purpose. And I suppose alongside that, there's another issue, which is we haven't built enough social housing and we sold off lots of it through a policy known as right to buy and didn't replace it. So it's kind of this coalescing of different issues. We don't have enough affordable social housing and we have allowed landlords to pretty much do what they want, made it easier for them to exploit people. And we have leveraged homes as assets. In a way that the global financial industries profit from. So, what we've come so, so far away from is that ultimately houses are homes and people need stable homes. And that is the thing from which everything else in your life stems out.
0: Mm. And I feel like in the UK, I mean, I think this is happening globally, but let's just talk about the UK. The property market and housing and home ownership has become such a big social divide. Like, you either have or a have not. And that divide is really, really stark.
1: Yeah, I think that is a really important point. And I've written about this before. I think it's interesting to look at it through the lens of class. And actually, now, class is quite subjective, as in, you can start out in your life as one socioeconomic class, and that can change over time. But what does define your class is really wealth. Right, and I think nowhere is this more pronounced than in terms of housing wealth. We know that people whose parents owned homes are more likely to be able to buy a house of their own because they can remortgage, they can release equity, they can help them get on the property ladder. They might be wealthier to begin with, and I think this really is the divide now. And we see it with our generation and the generation below. I think it's around one third of millennials will never own a home of their own as things currently stand they'll be renting forever. And that speaks to that fact too. But what I would say on this point, I'm actually interested to know what you think about this too. Mm. I worry that we've developed this narrative of evil landlords, hating landlords, hating millennial homeowners, resenting older generations who hoard housing and hoard housing wealth. And while I understand those tensions and I think it's important to highlight them and the inequality they engender I fear that we are being encouraged to fight amongst ourselves by people who make a lot of money from the system as it currently is. I'm not sure I begrudge anyone who has the opportunity to get on the property ladder and does. And as much as I may not agree with landlordism or rentier capitalism, as Thomas Piketty calls it, in its current form, I'm not sure that anyone engaging with it is doing anything a moral because it's completely legal and actually it's politicians who are enabling this and it's the banks who are making money off it and I wish there was a conversation, I don't necessarily know what that looks like, that could bring people together and look at how this is impacting our society and really really damaging the fabric of it.
0: I think that's a really good point, I mean I don't love landlords, I've had way too many shitty ones but you know in terms of millennial homeowners I think there is a lot of vitriol levelled at some of them depending on the circumstances through which they've bought and you're right in that yeah we are being encouraged to fight amongst ourselves and actually in a weird way I think politicians kind of get off scot-free the banks certainly get off scot-free because I didn't really realise to what extent they are responsible and to what extent they're profiting like the people who get the most stick are landlords and as you said millennial homeowners and actually the people who are responsible are successive governments this is kind of my next question is who has the power to improve the housing situation in the UK because it feels like there isn't much that ordinary people can do to try and change things is that the case
1: i want to say no that's not the case there's loads that can be done because i am ultimately an optimist but Unfortunately, I think what can be done by ordinary people, voters, is limited, right? This is really important for our economy now. Our economy does not make anything in this country, in Britain. And we rely on rising house prices and house price inflation to keep financial services ticking over. Again, this is something I write about all the time. And you can see it in the response to the coronavirus pandemic in the economic policies or monetary policies that have been rolled out. I think it's interesting that Boris Johnson's government and Rishi Sunak chose a stamp duty cut, which people listening to this may have benefited from. Again, I don't, yeah, and I don't think that is a bad thing or that anyone should feel guilt or shame, but the government knew that introducing that policy would inflate the housing market and cause house prices to rise. That gives the illusion of economic growth. It makes people feel richer because it looks like their home is going up in value. They borrow more, they spend more. That keeps the economy turning. That is one way of recovering from this crisis. Another way would have been to invest in infrastructure and build social housing and to see social housing as infrastructure. But what did we want to avoid or what did they want to avoid? A crash in which the banks could no longer make money. And just to quickly explain that, mortgages are traded, right? So the debt that you take out with your bank like banks trade that debt in a a global way we saw that with the 2008 crash and I suppose the best place I've ever seen it explained in the most basic and easy to digest terms is probably the film the big short where they get Margot Robbie in the bath with a glass of champagne explaining how these markets work so I'd recommend
0: everyone watching that (laughs) noted
1: But I think the responsibility lies with how we have enabled our economy to become so reliant on rising house prices to give the illusion of prosperity and growth. And I think that politicians on the left and the right, but but mostly on the right, over the last 30 years have really signed off on this. And I don't think we should ever forget the extent to which they signed off on it. Now, in terms of what people can do in short term, there are things we can do. So if you're a renter, join a renter's union. They do great work. They help people in really dire circumstances resist eviction or get the support they need. Charities like Shelter you can donate to who have great support services. But ultimately for me, these are sticking plasters. They're not solutions. That's in the immediate term. That's kind of emergency response stuff. Then I suppose the next layer of it is think about who you're voting for. What are their housing policies? What are they going to do to the housing market? Who are they looking out for?
0: But a depressing thing, I feel like I read this a couple of weeks ago, there was some data that came out that actually the majority of people in the UK, correct me if I'm wrong, but the majority are homeowners, which incentivizes them to vote for people who are propping up the housing market, as opposed to trying to reform it. So I find that quite depressing. I'm almost like, as a sheer numbers game, we can't outvote all the homeowners who benefit from these rising prices. And actually, I suppose I should put myself... I am a homeowner, but I would never vote for a policy that props up the housing market just because of my own personal politics. But by and large, there are people who are benefiting from spiraling house prices.
1: Yeah. So I think there's a few things here. Also, full disclosure, I also own my flat. I bought it through Help to Buy, which is an inflationary scheme that I don't agree with.
0: We'll get onto that in a bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we can totally address that. But again, I would always vote in favour of more regulation, both in the private renter sector and in the housing market at large. But yes, so the majority of people, I think it's 63% of people in Britain are homeowners. That has been the case now for quite some time. We have a majority homeowning population. That's Thatcher's dream of the property owning democracy that she declared she was going to build and has laid the groundwork for. And that was followed up on by a bit by New Labour, but particularly by David Cameron, and now by Boris Johnson. And actually, interestingly, Theresa May was very pro-regulation. And a lot of the things she tried to get in did obviously not see the light of day, because her tenure as Prime Minister was so short. But I think that this is really... Probably one of the biggest challenges we face because a lot of people say to me, oh, democracy is broken. And I'm like, well, it depends how you define the function of democracy, right? If it's to serve, (laughs) I'm not saying I agree with this, by the way, but like if it's to serve the majority of people, then everything's working just fine. The majority of people want to own their home. They want to see it go up in value. They want to retire and, like, I don't know, whatever the British dream is. Like, go on a cruise, buy a second home in Spain, become a buy-to-let landlord, and, like, just live a very nice life. Like, the majority of people, even if they're not achieving that, feel like they can because house prices keep rising. So, in some ways, our electoral system is working because when policies that privilege homeowners above everyone else are rolled out, they are serving the majority. However, if you think the function of democracy (laughs) is to make sure... That basic human rights, like the right to housing, are enshrined, then yeah, ours is not working. How homeowners vote is quite complicated, and it does change. And there's a really great academic at Oxford called Ben Ansell, who regularly studies this. We know that people who own their homes are, broadly speaking, more likely to vote Conservative. And this trend has been occurring in our politics years now, for decades. It was a little bit challenged in 1997 with Tony Blair, but broadly speaking, that is how things go. It's very difficult to make predictions, and certainly most economics and politics academics will now, post-Brexit, not want to. But from interviewing people like Ben, my understanding of this is that our generation and the one below will be a challenge to the status quo because the number of renters is historically high and it could well continue to grow. It depends what happens with the housing market and what happens with policies. So we may see it challenged, but while people want to make money from property and while that is encouraged and enabled by our culture and our politics, I do think we are in trouble And this is something that is acknowledged by a lot of people who work in housing and look at the housing market and are trying to reform it. Our best bet really is a government that would be bold and would take charge of it and would reform things. And I thought that actually, under Labour, the manifesto put out by Jeremy Corbyn had some of the best housing policies to fix this situation I'd ever
0: come across. But
1: of course, they weren't voted in.
0: Yes, I think we all remember that exit poll result. I was online 10pm when it came out. One thing I'll say about British politics is that you get an election result instantaneously. I mean, it's not like America where it drags out for weeks on end. It was like, oh, landslide for Boris Johnson. I'm going to go to bed now. But anyway... I want to talk a bit more about renting, because when you were features editor of The Debrief, you ran a successful campaign called Make Renting Fair, which highlighted the plight of you know so-called generation rent, which resulted in the government announcing a ban on letting agency fees for tenants, which is incredible, by the way. First of all, well done. I'd love to know what inspired you to start that campaign. I know that there were some personal experiences involved. Can you just talk me through how that came about?
1: Yeah. I forget how angry I was in that moment. Basically, I had just moved into a new flat and all in, including letting agency fees and deposit, I think it was about £1,700 I was asked for up front. Maybe it was a little bit more than that, but it was definitely around there, close to two grand. Mm. I did not have that much money. I was like a 26-year-old journalist. I didn't have that in savings. And I had to borrow money to pay it. Also knowing how deposits work in the private renter sector, that you might never see any of it again because landlords just love to skim out of your deposit and make up things you've broken. I was incredibly frustrated and I felt like I was being penalised for being a renter. And the rent that I was going to be paying was not insignificant either. I think this was like a 14... £100 a month flat which I was sharing with someone else so it it really really stung and it felt so unfair and I kept asking the letting agency like what is this for what is this for why is this reference 150 quid or whatever and they just couldn't tell me and they were so dismissive of my concerns about the costs and I was like yeah something's got to be done here so being a journalist I did whatever I do when I don't like something, which is just research the hell out of it and find out why it is how it is. And I came across the fact that Letting fees had been long banned in Scotland, Scotland often the most progressive place in the UK. And I was like, well, if they're banned in Scotland, we can totally get them banned in England and Wales. And I knew that organizations like Shelter and campaign groups like Generation Rent had been talking about this for a while, but it had got very little political traction. And my editor and publisher at The Debrief, two incredible women, Rebecca Holman and Lauren Hollyoak, wanted to do a campaign. And they were like, what's going on in your life? What do you want to do? And I said this. And as any good editor or publisher does, they just gave me the space to do it. So we set up a petition, I started writing about it, basically tapped up pretty much everyone I knew in politics and political journalism and wouldn't stop talking about it until eventually I got a phone call, I won't say who from, telling me that it was going to be confirmed in the budget by Philip Hammond and that they were going to get rid of letting fees. That's incredible. It really came from me not having the money to pay and being sick of the injustice of every time I moved having to stump up this cash and thinking right like I can't afford
0: this no one can afford this and it's not fair. Totally and as you say you're being penalised for being a renter because it's just increasing the cost of renting every time you have to move which isn't an ideal situation for most people anyway then there are these associated costs which then diminishes your ability to save up for a deposit to buy a place, like it's such a vicious cycle. So congratulations on making that happen. Although I do wanna say, even though that law is now in place, you know, and I know, that letting agencies can be incredibly sneaky and that some of them have still tried to impose fees on tenants since. And do you have any advice if someone finds themselves in that position? What can they do to fight back? Who should they call or email or get in touch with?
1: Yeah, and this sadly is still happening all the time, and it really shouldn't be. I'm actually working on a story about it this week. What can you do if that happens to you? First of all, the piece of legislation that came out of that campaign is called the Tenant Fees Act. Get to know it, you can find it on the internet. My favorite thing to do with letting agents, estate agents in general, is to just quote bits of legislation at them and then hyperlink. So just find, <laughs> revealing a lot about myself here, um, yeah. find the bit of the act that's relevant. So like, it's unlawful to take more than X week's deposit and just quote it back at them. You can also tell them if they are trying to take your money unlawfully that you will report them to the ombudsman. And I would strongly encourage you to do that. Most reputable letting agents are a member of a trade body like the Association of Residential Letting Agents. You can also say that you will report them to that organisation. If you still are getting nowhere, and sadly, not all letting agents are reputable, the ombudsman is probably your best bet, and writing to your MP is also a good shout. But knowing your rights is a really, really good start, because if you push back, I always get the receipts for every interaction you have as a renter. Mm. A letting agents, in my experience, will always try and do things over the phone. Yeah, and I always would encourage people to just do it over email so you've got a paper
0: trail. Mm. Totally agree. Okay, I want to talk about the more personal side of housing because as you said earlier on, you are yourself a homeowner, and I want to understand how you got onto the property ladder given that you are yourself part of this generation rent. Could you talk me through what that process was like for you and how you made that happen?
1: Yeah, of course. So becoming a homeowner by 33, which is how old I am now, isn't something I thought would have happened by this point in my life. I suppose what I would stress here is that I do think I am an anomaly in many ways. So I recognize that my situation is not the norm. It's quite complicated as well. So I need to think about how I, basically involves my ex-partner. So a lot of young people who don't have inherited wealth, do end up now buying homes with their partners, maybe even before they're married or before they're ready. Anecdotally, we know this happens a lot. It happened to me and we're no longer together, but we still own the flat together. And it was our combined salaries that made it possible. I don't think I could have done this on my own. And what about a deposit? I got a book deal. So I had some cash and I also took voluntary redundancy from a job and got a chunk of cash. So those two things... Gave me more money than I've ever had in my bank account ever in my life and have ever had since. So who knows what the future looks like. And my ex partner's grandparents gave him some money. Mm. And that's how it was possible. And it wasn't buying through a conventional route, i.e., just you get a mortgage on a house and that's that. It was only possible through Help to Buy, which is a scheme to help people who don't have. A full deposit to get a normal mortgage, mm-hmm. which obviously, to be honest, it's the albatross around my neck in many ways. I'm very grateful for my situation; wouldn't undo it, but I worry a lot about what happens in ooh, just under two years when the interest on my Help to Buy loan kicks in because I can't repay it. <laughs> That's a huge looming shadow on the horizon for Help to Buy because I imagine a lot of people fit the same.
0: Could you talk me through how that works then with the interest rates? And like, could you just break down how help to buy works and the various pros and cons? Because along with shared ownership, that is often something that's put forward as the best option for young millennials or just anyone, to be honest, to get onto the property ladder for the first time. And even despite having bought a place six months ago, I did it the conventional way as you describe it, but I didn't look into any of those options because they just seemed so complicated and stressful for me. So I'd love to understand how they work.
1: Yeah, very important that I don't give any financial advice because obviously I'm a journalist and people should
0: look into financial advice. Do not sue Vicky for trying to help you guys. You have to go through me first. Yeah, Google it.
1: And definitely if you're in a position to use any of these schemes i would take independent advice but helped by just broadly speaking it's different inside and outside of london but it's it's an equity loan scheme in its current form where you have a 5% deposit normally banks want 10 15 20 you have 5% the government will give you a loan to the tune of 20 40% and then you take out a mortgage on the rest so you have your mortgage and you have a government loan, and the government loan is interest-free for five years, and you don't have to repay it. I think that's right. But then after five years, you have to start repaying it. And that is another added expense that you will have after that period of time. What I could direct people to is an article that I wrote for a website called Tortoise about how help to buy came into being, and I interviewed the special advisor to George Osborne, who actually was one of the guys behind the scheme. It was kind of his idea. I was very struck when I interviewed him because I told him I'd use the scheme. And, I, you know, it's for people who can't get a big enough deposit together. And he said to me, oh, yeah, but sure, like, you'll have repaid your help to buy loan before the interest kicks in, right? And I was like, uh, it's over £150,000. I don't have that kind of money. Otherwise, I would have just bought the flat outright." Do you know what I mean? Like,
0: yeah. no. So he doesn't even understand how it works or how like the real life effects of it, essentially. That's so troubling.
1: It's a really good article in terms of that quote. Sometimes you're doing interviews. For me, normally it's a terrifying realisation about the economy and the people who are in charge of it. And that was one of those moments where I was like, wow, you have no idea how much money normal people have. Yeah. Because to him, 150k is probably, you know, a drop in the ocean.
0: That's terrifying. Can I just... Ask a quick question about that. So does that mean for the first five years you are paying back essentially part of a mortgage? And then after five years, you're paying back an entire mortgage because it's now also you started paying back the government loan?
1: Effectively. But one is a government loan and one is a mortgage, and they're two separate products. And the
0: repayments,
1: you know, they're not huge, but I think over time how the scheme is administered and managed will be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. All that being said, I own a flat and I have some space of my own and everything is a trade off, right? So I'm not saying do it or don't do it, that's just how it works. If you can, then obviously there's shared ownership, which is a slightly different thing, can be a little bit more complicated, although the government have tried to simplify it because a lot of the flats, this is true of Help to Buy as well actually, are leasehold And Mm. new builds. And obviously, a lot of new builds are in loads of trouble at the moment because they have all sorts of defects, which are being revealed by the building safety scandal post Grenfell. And lots of people who have done shared ownership and helped buy finding themselves trapped in unsafe homes. So it's really important to properly look into what you're buying. But the way that shared ownership works is that you buy a percentage of the property and then you rent the rest from the property owner. Now, that could be a housing association or a private building, freeholder. But it's basically, it's kind of part own, part rent. But what the idea is over time is that you'll do what's called staircasing. So say you bought 15% to begin with. Eventually, you work yourself up to 60%, 70 80%, 100% of the property. But generally speaking, people pay a mortgage as well as rent on a shared ownership property.
0: Okay, got it. The thing that I found slightly terrifying about shared ownership or the prospect of it was my understanding is it the rent that can go up if the people who own it decide to put it up I found the idea of not knowing what my outgoings would be let's say in five years time or in two years time if the person who overall owned the property decided to like put the rent up or the mortgage up I found that really terrifying could you break that down a little bit for me
1: Yeah, big problem with these products is that they're not particularly easy to understand. So your mortgage can't go up. You know what your mortgage repayments are going to be, right? Because when you take out a mortgage, that's fixed at a certain amount for X number of years and you know if you're taking out interest only or repayment. But with any leasehold property and also with shared ownership, you are dealing with multiple different factors, right? So there's your ground rent, which does change over time depending on how much the building owner wants to charge, Although there are more limits and accountability on that now than there have been previously, although never enough, of course. And then the rent that you're charged. Yes, that can change over time. I have heard some horror stories, but broadly, I think that is usually kept relatively reasonable because shared ownership, if it's a housing association or a local authority or whatever, you know, they do have a degree of accountability. But of course, we do hear those horror stories. And then the added extra, particularly on my mind at the moment, because I've been speaking to so many people in this situation, and it's just an absolute disgrace that it's not being fixed. But because of the building safety scandal, people are being hit for bills to fix things like missing fire breaks, cladding that isn't covered by the government funding, or other fire safety defects, because no one can decide who's meant to pay for it. The builders the building owner, the government. And yeah, I think that's another huge issue. So definitely important to make sure if you are buying something that it's up to scratch. I mean, a lot of those homes are now unsellable. So I don't think they're coming onto the market. But that is something that a lot of people in leasehold shared ownership properties are now dealing with.
0: Okay, thank you for explaining that for me, because I've never understood that. So I hope everyone listening also finds that really useful. A quick word from our episode sponsor, Plum. I already mentioned that the Plum app is brilliant for helping you to set and achieve your savings goals. But did you also know that Plum actually helps you to invest your money as well? You can start investing through the Plum app from as little as one pound, choosing the type of funds that you'd like to invest in, whether those are tech giants like Apple and Facebook, or clean and green investments and companies selected for their social responsibility. Once you've selected your funds, Plum does all the rest for you, so all you have to do is sit back and let your money work. Download the Plum app for free now and try it out for yourself. Please note, your capital is at risk if you choose to invest. And now, back to the show. I want to talk a bit about your relationship with money and specifically how your relationship with money has changed, if at all, since you got on the property ladder, how many years ago was it? Just over three. Since you got on the property ladder three years ago.
1: My relationship with money. I mean, who does that question not bring out in cold sweats?
0: Right. Um, (laughs) Babe, try writing a whole book about it.
1: (laughs) I've read the book and it's very good. But yeah, it, um, it is definitely something that I am still working on my relationship with, probably will be my entire life. I think what's interesting about owning property is, although I have a lot of concerns Particularly as I didn't buy this as a single person and I'm now paying a mortgage that was <laughs> meant for two people on my own. Which don't feel sorry for me, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to make it work
0: just. No, you don't need to do the privileged disclaimer, like that is a change in circumstance that is difficult for people to bear. Like, I completely understand that.
1: Yeah, it's been huge. Um, yeah. it has been huge. You're, you're, like your
0: outgoings doubled. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's mad. They
1: did they did double. But here we are, still hanging on by the skin of my teeth. I guess if that hadn't happened, I'd probably have a lot more disposable income. And, you know, when this was a two-person household, I noticed that I did feel like I could treat myself to stuff in ways that I never had. So this is why they think that the property-owning democracy is a good thing, right? Because you feel more secure and you're paying off a mortgage. And you think one day, even though I know it's not true because this flat's never going to make me rich, you've, like, absorbed that narrative by osmosis, right? So I'd suddenly be like, oh, yeah, I could treat myself to this. I don't know, a pair of sunglasses that I would never otherwise have bought. And also my mortgage repayments when this was a two-person household were lower than I'd ever paid in rent in the private Mm -hmm. renter sector. So proportionally to my income, I did have more money. That's obviously now not the case. So I guess my situation is different to a lot of people who buy a flat because actually now I have bigger outgoings than I'd ever anticipated. But even though that's the case and I have to deal with the weight of that, I do feel secure, I suppose. And I think this is why I'm such an advocate of housing security in whatever form we can bring that about, whether it's social housing or affordable models of home ownership, regulation of the private rental sector. Because when all's said and done, as long as I keep paying for this, all being well with some other factors, I am only really beholden to myself and the bank. And I don't have a landlord breathing down my neck who could one day decide that they want to evict me or sell up or not fix a huge patch of mould. So I think in that respect, I feel more secure. But I'm not reaping the financial benefits of this in the way that I would be if it was a two-person household.
0: Mm, that makes sense. And um, I mean, I totally feel you about the security. It's kind of a mixture of security and anxiety. Like, I think when I bought my place, I've definitely gotten into a bit of, like, quite bad habits with my spending, I was saving up for my entire twenties because I am a saver, and then it transpired that that saving allowed me to buy this place. Like I did not start out thinking I was going to buy a flat when I turned thirty. But as soon as that weight was lifted, I have found myself, as you've probably seen, just being a bit like spendy and treaty and being like, "Oh well, okay, you've got the house now, and like things are all going to be fine, and like as long as you can pay the mortgage, you can kind of do whatever you want with your money." Which, to an extent, I think is like something I'm going to allow myself to enjoy for a little bit because like I said, I was pretty like sort of tight with myself for a lot of my 20s. So I'm like, okay, you can like unbuckle your belt a little bit for like a couple of Mm -hmm. months or a couple of years. But there's also the anxiety sometimes being like, I have to pay for this all myself or like anytime something breaks or my roof was leaking last week and the bill for that and the bill for this. And sometimes I'm a bit like, like I definitely feel more pressure with my work to make sure that I continue to be in a position to pay this mortgage off that's something I feel but overall it's just made me even angrier about the housing situation because first of all it was really complicated and difficult for me to get a mortgage as a self-employed person which I won't bore you with now but we've talked about it before and I've written about it in my book
1: well that's a huge
0: issue
1: that's a huge issue
0: and like banks are not Lenders are not responding to the changing demographics of the way people work and the fact that so many more people are outdated. Like, it's, it's so outdated. Like I had to provide accounts and income statements that dated to two and three years ago. I'm like, my income has changed. My work has changed. If I were working a nine to five job, you would not ask them what they were earning two or three years ago because I'm self-employed. And actually, in a way, kind of have a good amount of job security because I don't have one employer who can make me redundant at any time. Like, I actually have lots of little employers. So when one thing disappears, it's like, well, I've still got 90% of my income left. Like, I just I found it so antiquated. But overall, the sense of pure bliss and happiness I felt about getting onto the property ladder. I felt so angry that not everyone is able to have that like not in a patronising way, but I was like, as soon as it happened for me, I was like, oh, this is a human right. Like everyone should have this kind of security. It was a weight that lifted off my mind that I hadn't realised I'd been carrying around with me for so long. And then it just made me really angry. And yeah, I mean, I can just imagine that's kind of fed into your work as well. But I just wanted to share that little personal anecdote.
1: No, and absolutely. And I think you've hit upon something Really important. So, in my book, I talk about ontological security. So, this is kind of your spiritual, emotional, psychological sense of safety and stability. Mm. And there's a lot of interesting work that's been done on the lack of ontological security experienced by homeless people or people who are regularly evicted in the private renter sector. And I Mm. report on some of that work. It's quite new, cutting edge sociology that's being done. It also has informed housing first in Scotland. Housing first for anyone who doesn't know, it came out of Finland where they've basically eradicated homelessness and it's the idea that you give a homeless person a home and then you work out from there. So, they can't fix anything else in their life until they've got stable housing. Don't tell them to deal with their addiction issues, which could be both a symptom and a cause of being homeless. Don't tell them to get a job, which is both a symptom and a cause of being homeless just give them a house and then work from there because once you have ontological security you're able to address other things in your life and that's what you're talking about right like the relief that you felt and how you felt when you bought your place
0: and conversely the insane levels of anxiety I felt in the years that I rented in London and I never had particularly great renting situations for various reasons a lot of shitty landlords and just kind of mediocre flats. And that was also one of the most anxious periods of my adult life. It's a feeling that I wouldn't, I mean, I say wouldn't wish on anyone. So many people have that and are going through that. But it's genuinely feeling that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. And again, I feel like the people who are making the policies do not understand that feeling and what it's like, that there is no way they understand because politicians, you know, mostly privately educated, went to Oxford, had down payments on flats. They've never done that precarious renting thing and they don't understand how it affects your mindset.
1: I think that's it. And so this really feeds into what I was going to say next. And I think you touched on something really important, which is that they don't understand that by deregulating the private renter sector, making it easier for landlords to evict people with Section 21, no rent control. So your landlord, whenever it's possible in your tenancy agreement, can put up your rent beyond what you can afford These things, leaks, breakages that landlords won't fix, not having autonomy in the one place in the world you should feel safe, not knowing if you'll be able to afford your home next year. Because a mortgage, generally speaking, goes down over time and you can budget and you can work out how it's going to look because you can remortgage it, pay bits off or whatever, change bank, get a better interest rate. With rent, your landlord could just tell you, oh, this year I feel like I'm going to put it up by 200 pounds. That's a lot of money for people. And I think Mm -hmm. we wonder why younger generations are so anxious. And how can you plan a life? How can you focus on anything when the one thing that you need to be stable, your home, is out of your control? And that is why we are depriving people of ontological security, of like a basic right to secure, stable, and affordable housing. And that leads us into something really important to acknowledge, which is, I think in this country, more than some other European countries, we are particularly obsessed with home ownership. It's Mm -hmm. almost a cult, right? We know this is Mm -hmm. bad for the economy. We're looking at it now. Just today, the Bank of England has told The Guardian they are monitoring house price inflation because i really worried about it. Like, it's not good. No one thinks this is good, but we are addicted to it. And I think if the private renter sector provided people with more security, then there would be less desperation. And I do think it is desperation to get on the housing ladder. It is desperation.
0: And this is what I was going to say. I have a relative who lives in Switzerland and I, over the years, ever since I was a kid, we've always gone to visit her in this beautiful apartment. It's like got that kind of really old style European elevators that you like crank and it's just gorgeous. So I, you know, have been there when I was five and I've also been there in my twenties. And I said something to my mum once, basically making the assumption that she owned it. And she was like, oh no, she rents it. And I was like, you're telling me she has such security over that that she's been able to rent it for at least 20, 30. Like she's just been there forever because the rules are set up that way. And she's been able to say that. And I was like, that is unthinkable to be renting the same place for multiple decades in the UK. And if it was the case that that was possible in the UK, I don't think a lot of people would be that fussed about home ownership because there are a lot of expenses involved and it makes you more inflexible and blah, 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 blah. But it's the fact that renting can be so shitty, so expensive, so stressful. Of course, people are obsessed with home ownership. And I think it's particularly cruel that this country, the culture is obsessed with home ownership and then it's also so hard to achieve. Like, it's just, it's like waving something in front of your face that you'll never have.
1: And it's also, I think, incredibly, I don't use this word lightly, but it's a toxic narrative that we are sold, right? That if you work hard enough, you can buy a house. And if you can't buy one, it's because you're not working hard enough. Despite the obvious numbers which tell you that for an increasing number of people the chances of home ownership, like the odds of getting it are are stacked against them. And I think what I would say here is it doesn't have to be like this. And it's not like this in other places. Okay, so let's take Scotland, where they recently, a few years ago, introduced secure lifetime tenancies for as long as people needed and wanted them. And also a form of rent control through rent pressure zones. So in parts of Scotland, cities where rents were getting particularly hot, high and unaffordable, rent pressure zones were introduced so that local authorities at a local level can control them. Now that is exactly what we need in England and in Wales and it's really not so far away because it's happening in Scotland and what I would say also is that it wasn't always like this in England so after the First World War it wasn't perfect, I'm not going to like do that kind of oh, in the mid-century, we had utopia thing. Because like we definitely didn't, and even Labour back then weren't always getting it right. But some important things did happen. We did have national rent controls after the First World War. They existed in various forms, including rent-controlled long-term tenancies until Margaret Thatcher did away with them. So we did have them. And more people rented then than owned. A lot of the homes were not good quality. They needed to be improved. A lot of them needed knocked down. But at that time, when we were building social housing and controlling the private rented sector, we were in a better place than we are currently. And I think that's also really important to acknowledge. And the way that social housing works, once you're in and you have a stable home for as long as you need it, that is the basic philosophy of Housing First that we had in this country. And we've undermined it. We've undermined it.
0: I I want to change topic a little bit and talk about an experience that you and I have both shared, although at slightly different times, which is Oxford. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I mean, it's kind of related to housing in a way, because as a result of us going to Oxford and the socioeconomic demographic of a lot of the people who go to Oxford and Cambridge as well. So Oxbridge, I know that a lot of my friends got onto the property ladder in their early in mid 20s and i'm pretty sure that must apply to you as well which is also well before the average age of a first time buyer in the uk because that's 32 or something in the uk outside of london and in london it's 37 which is The fact that I always like to remind people of because Instagram makes it look as though buying a home in your 20s is the norm it's not and I say actually I think you might have been the one that reminded me of that when I was stressing about not being able to buy a place and you were like by the way you realize that buying your first home in your 20s is like not the norm and I mean first of all did you feel envy about that situation at all in your 20s because I know I definitely did and If you did, do you have any tips for people for keeping that at bay? Oh my gosh, where do I begin? (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah, I was very stressed. This is going to sound really daft and really silly. But at first, I think I was quite naive about Oxford. I didn't grow up in a particularly political household. Politics wasn't really discussed ever. And I suppose I didn't look into it. Enough, and that's definitely on me. And I would love to go back in time and try and work out why that was the case. So I think I was a bit naive about what I was getting into as the first person in my family to go to university and end up going to Oxford. Mm. I don't think I appreciated how wealthy a lot of the people I was meeting were.
0: I'll be honest, I went to a private school, as you know, obviously on a scholarship, but I went to a private school. I was taken aback when I got to Oxford at how wealthy people were. And that's having come from a private school.
1: Okay, well, that makes me feel a bit better about it.
0: I don't think the culture shock would have been as extreme, but I do think there is something utterly nuts about Oxbridge and the level of wealth that it attracts.
1: Yeah, and I knew those people existed, but I'd never met them. And when I graduated, suddenly everyone was renting really swanky flats or just living in really swanky flats that their parents had bought for them. And I ended up renting a room in a flat owned by a friend from Oxford whose parents owned it pretty much outright, I think. That was when the penny started to drop where I was like, I can't afford to intern. I can't afford to take low-paid jobs that I need to take to get into the industry I want to be in. And I looked around me and I was like, wait, I'm paying for your internship. Mm. (laughs) Um, It ruined a couple of friendships. I have to be very honest here. This is something I've only really just been able to admit to myself I think I went into a state of denial and I didn't really tell anyone what my upbringing was like what my parents did where they lived I certainly took me years to come to terms with all of those feelings about my own background I just never said anything and I knew also deep down that I needed to be renting from that friend even though she sat around doing very little while I went out to work and paid that rent which I know went straight into her bank account Because I need... It was cheaper than a private landlord. It was still, what, like £600 a month, which back then, 2011, was actually a lot of money. But it was a nicer flat than I'd have anywhere else. And I knew that the landlord was her dad. And that was a lot safer to me than the private market, which I experienced whilst renting in Oxford and also since. So I think I kind of suppressed or repressed all of my feelings about this to survive because I needed to live in that flat. And then one day I just realized that I couldn't keep up with these people anymore. It wasn't financially, although I was in loads of credit card debt at this time, loads, some of it from being at Oxford and some of it coming back to London and renting and trying to work on a reasonably low wage. I just couldn't keep up emotionally anymore. And that was when I realized that I was angry and it felt really unfair. And I saw under the hood of how social mobility works. And there Mm. are some, I hate the phrase social mobility, but like we all understand what it means. So it's a useful tool in this instance as a way of describing a process. The idea for me, and I think why my grandparents and my mom and my dad actually were so keen on Oxford, maybe even keener on it than I was, is because they truly believed that that would fix all my problems. You don't come from money or a family that has considered itself or even been socioeconomically middle class for very long, if at all. And you go to a university like Oxford and you're made for life. But studies show us that actually if you don't come from wealth, social mobility goes into reverse after graduation for a lot of people. And I think that was the slow realisation that I as a journalist who knew about this stuff was starting to have where I was like, I'm just a walking advert for this problem and I don't see a way out. And it was really anxiety-inducing and heartbreaking. And I found it confusing too because I didn't really know where I belonged. So I think if I had to give anyone who finds themselves in that situation, which will be millions of people who can't afford to buy a house in their 20s, surround yourself with people who know what it's like, who are also trying to make it work. And whatever you do, do not ingest this idea that it is somehow your fault. There are so many graphs that show rents and house prices have outpaced wages over the course of the last decade or so. It's not you. You are literally not earning enough for this to be affordable. And politicians will continue to tinker around the edges with schemes like helped buy and shared ownership. And they will help some people. They will help some people. Whether they're flawed is another matter. But it's not you. It's Genuinely incredibly hard now, and you have to earn, especially in London, but this is also true in other parts of the country. You have to earn really decent money to feel like renting privately is affordable, let alone to save on top of your rent. And this is going to be a huge, huge problem. I don't know if this would give people comfort or not, but it's going to be a huge problem in years to come because right now, when people get old, our care system. Is funded by them being able to sell their house. And for younger generations, that's not going to be possible. Like they're not going to have assets. So at some point, I hope I like to think something will change. I know that Theresa May was a fan of the idea of rent control. She was kind of talked around to it. So even if Labour do continue to lose elections, and we continue to have <laughs> conservative prime ministers, the penny might start to drop, right? Mm. Younger voters don't own property, we've got a social care crisis on the horizon shit, we've got to do something, if that's the kind of thing that like helps me sleep at night when I'm worried about stuff. So I would like take solace in that too. This is bigger than any individual, which is why I say it's not your fault. But also, it's a looming and unfolding crisis for our society. So I do think something will have to change. But I think protecting yourself by being around people who get it and who are also just trying their best is really, really important.
0: Yeah, I think that's brilliant advice. And it's something that I didn't discover till my late 20s, mid to late 20s. I mean, that's when you and I became friends, for instance. And I think you and I have had a lot of really honest conversations about all of this that have made me feel better and that I hadn't had before that point in my life.
1: I'm glad to hear that. But what I would say is I will disclose something really personal, which is when we started talking about it, I was so reassured. But I also did realise like what a minority we were in at Oxford, right? And like, I had definitely made assumptions about you, and I'm sure you'd made assumptions about me because it was yeah. just if you didn't have money, you didn't speak about it because you just wanted to fit in.
0: yeah, you just made it look as if you did.
1: yeah, wish was my credit card <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> to my shame. I just come across as quite rich. I've been told I'm just quite bougie, so people think i'm I come from money, so I'm kind of joking, but also not. like it's funny the number of people who make assumptions about my background and i think to be honest fairly so i think the fact that i am privately educated a has given me a lot of genuine privilege and advantages but b people generally i assume that people who are privately educated come from a certain economic background and it's only if they specify otherwise like say they had a scholarship that i'm like oh okay it might be different but generally if you have been privately educated you do tend to come from money so i can see why you might have made certain assumptions
1: And I could see why people would have made assumptions about me too, not least because I was spending my bursary on clothes to try and keep up with everyone.
0: Um, (laughs) Okay, I want to finish up with just a very quick sort of rapid fire round. Well, I say rapid fire, you can go into a bit more depth in these questions if you want. But my first question is, what is the best money decision you've ever made?
1: Ooh, paying off my credit cards. And now not really having any.
0: How long ago did you manage to pay those off?
1: It would have been just before I bought this place. So I would have been about 29. It wasn't easy and I was really scared that I wouldn't be able to do it. And I was determined to do it. And I hadn't told anyone, not my then partner or family, how bad things were. And when I did, I'd managed to pay off two-thirds of it. My granddad, who is no longer with us, found out, and he helped me with a little bit extra as well shortly before he died. Not a huge amount of money, but like mm. £1,500. It was like coming clean with him as well. I was like, oh, this is what I've been doing to keep up with everyone. In some ways, I don't really have regrets about it, although I'm not encouraging people to get into credit card debt, obviously. But it did enable me to, I guess not earn a lot of money for a while and keep up with socialising. But Mm. it got to a point where I was very scared. So I'm really glad that I managed to get rid of them. But I was, at one point, I was having to put like half of my earnings into them
0: every month. Oof, that's a lot. Okay. And my next question is, what is the worst money decision you've ever made or your biggest money mistake?
1: Overdraft, university. Interesting. I think... You think that an overdraft is all right, like, especially back then. They are more regulated now than they were when we were at uni in the 2000s. You could just extend your overdraft whenever you needed something. It's terrifying to think about. I don't think it's that easy now. But yeah, that was the worst decision I ever made. Because I just think psychologically being in your overdraft and paying money in and then only just getting back up to zero is, is really bad for you. It's also terrible for your credit rating to be in an overdraft. So I don't really have overdrafts now.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Next question, apart from your flat, I guess, mm. what is the most expensive thing you've ever bought? I'm always desperate to know <laughs> what people's answer cool. to this is.
1: Okay, I'm in my flat now, so I'm going to look around. What's the most expensive thing I own?
0: I think it's my sofa. I knew you were going to say sofa because sofas are so fucking expensive. But like, <laughs> I knew the second you said I'm in my flat looking around, I was like, it's going to be a sofa. This so oh, expensive. It's criminal. It's criminal. No, that's that's a good shout. My final question is, is this where you thought you'd be financially at this point in your life, say a decade ago? Oh, no,
1: not at all. For many reasons. Better or worse? Can I say both? (laughs) Okay, Yeah, go for it. It's better in that I own a flat, which is not perfect. It's not, you know, my dream house, but it is something and it's mine. And I've held on to it through a very, very difficult period of time. And that is more than I could ever have dreamed of coming from a family where like, I remember us losing our home, you know, like, that's why I think uh, housing stability is so important to me, because I know what it's like not to have it. And that is something I have to remind myself of all the time. This is better than I could ever have dreamed of, really. But worse in that, I suppose, I kind of always assumed that by now, I'd have a massive house, because that's what happens, right? Like... Mm you work your ass off and buy a house with a garden with another person. And you read all these magazines, or at least I did when we were growing up, that tell you that like buying a £3,000 handbag is totally normal. It's not, spoiler. So I am better and worse off. But I've been humbled by my own circumstances in the last 18 months, because I guess what I've been reminded of is that you can't really plan for anything. You know, I bought a house with someone who I thought I would spend significant period of my life with and that wasn't meant to happen. But you know, something like that can change your fortunes very, very quickly. And it changes people's fortunes all the time. Like lots of people I interview who become homeless or go into renting or whatever, it's a relationship breakdown does Mm. cause that. So I have been reminded of the fact that your finances are dependent on so many other factors. And you just have to do your best.
0: Yeah, totally. And I mean, also just speaking as your friend who has been privy to the past 18 months, I'm really impressed by the way you've handled that situation. And just, I always say this to you, like you're very resilient, which is a quality that I sometimes feel I lack. So I'm always really aware of it in other people, but you are very resilient. So I'm very proud of you. I think this might be all we have time for today. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom and advice I feel like you've explained so many things to me about the housing market that I thought I knew but really didn't and (laughs) I can't wait for your book to come out and for everyone to read it so thank you very much well thanks for having me it's been such a pleasure and that's it for this week thank you for tuning in If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about money and is available now in hardback, ebook and audio with signed copies available from waterstones.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at oteguagba, that's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. See you next week.